Welcome to the New Thinking for a New World podcast, where we explore the most pressing issues that are challenging and changing our societies. We are looking for new thinking and new solutions wherever we can find them. Listen as host Alan Stoga, the Talberg Foundation's chairman, challenges his guests for analysis, ideas and actions. Together, we can help make our world at least a bit better. Russia's invasion of Ukraine not only changed lives, it changed geopolitics. Suddenly, or so it seemed, the world was separated into a conflict between the U.S. and Europe on one hand and Russia and China on the other. Everybody else was invited, and there's air quotes around the word invited, to choose one side or the other. What about Mongolia? On the one hand, it is a democracy in a region where that is unusual, almost unique. On the other hand, it is geographically sandwiched between China and Russia, making it hard, very hard, to be independent. So which side? That's an unfair question, but my guest today is used to unfair questions. Dr. Undra Agvan Lufsan is president of the Green Building Council of Mongolia and a former member of parliament. She also holds a doctorate in physics from North Carolina State and has taught at Stanford in California. There are probably not many other female nuclear physicists in Mongolia. Welcome, Undra. Hey, thank you. Let's start with geopolitics. In terms of geo, Mongolia lives in a tough neighborhood, literally between China and Russia. In terms of politics, Mongolia has centuries of history with China, was once a part of the Soviet Union, and has remained within the Soviet or now the Russian sphere in the 21st century. And at the same time, your country has nurtured an incipient Western-style democracy. So is Mongolia part of the Russian or the Chinese or the Western sphere of influence? Yeah, when uh, we refer to the Mongolian foreign policy currently and in the past, uh, the word balancing has uh, been used quite often. And uh, it is, uh, uh, as you indicated, Alan, quite an uh, art or act to be friendly with our two geographic neighbors, but also to declare or determine who our, uh, the third neighbors are. In the constitution of Mongolia, also in our foreign policy documents, in our defense policy documents, we determine the third neighbors on the basis of value, not on the basis of geography. Obviously, geography determines that we have Russia and China as our neighbors. But uh, uh, what we uh, uphold is uh, important human rights, democracy, free market economy determines who we choose to be uh, choose as our third neighbor. Of course, we uh, in the diplomatic uh, formal sense, all the other countries are third neighbors, but we even are not shy in listing them in the order of importance. So in that regard, uh, uh, the third neighbors are the United States, the European countries, uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, India, Australia, Canada, and so on. So uh, that, uh, that's it. Uh, when you say that Mongolia was part of Soviet Union, it's not formally quite so. We were always independent country uh, in terms of uh, in the communist bloc. We were, 
after uh, the 1921 uh, communist revolution, uh, we were socialist revolution, we became the second communist country in the world. So uh, now looking back at the history for the 70 years following that, up until the democratic revolution in 1990, many of Mongolian foreign policy decisions were dictated by Moscow. So in that regard, of course, we were strongly under the sphere of influence of the Soviet Union. Uh, de facto, uh, the 16th Republic, uh, I would say, not in uh, in the legal sense, but in reality. So uh, currently, uh, when the world is in uh, in turmoil, because I would say turmoil, but uh, um, maybe the war in Ukraine, uh, when you look at the Russian media, it's not termed as a war, right? It is being described as a military action, military operation. So only recently it started being acknowledged as a war. But I think it really tests the uh, international uh, order now and what would happen to the Russian neighbors uh, I'm sure China is closely watching. I would not say China and Russia are quite aligned in terms of policy, what's going on in Europe. Let me push back on that, Undra, because at the Beijing Olympics, uh, President Xi and, and President Putin uh, had, a, had a summit meeting and signed a declaration, which indeed said they were perfectly aligned, said that their perception of the values that should underline their definition of democracy were completely together that they resented and resisted the West, the U.S., Europe, uh, trying to impose on other countries values that the West thought were important, the ones that you've already mentioned. Um, and since then, China has clearly been very supportive of Russia financially, economically, from an intelligence point of view, probably on other ways. So although you're, the third neighbor strategy made a lot of sense in the first two decades of the 21st century. How do you successfully hold on to the third neighbor strategy in a world that is moving away, is moving towards camps, moving towards blocks? Uh, that That's a challenge. Yeah, correct. It's, uh, it's not uh, uh, easy to cite, like you said. Um, Mongolia is uh, uh, almost entirely dependent on Russia, on uh, energy products, uh, transportation, uh, petroleum products, we import more than 90% of it from Russia. Uh, our energy electricity grid is uh, connected to the Siberian grid uh, for uh, to with, with the fluctuation and uh, the peak load, how we adjust it with the differences of the day and night. So when um, when we are so dependent on one neighbor, on energy uh, security and the transportation uh, sector entirely, it is difficult to really um, um, pull away, right? So I think many of our partners from Europe and in the, also the U.S. Uh, recognize our position. Uh, in terms of uh, trade, we are um, heavily dependent on China for anything other than the energy product and transportation fuel. So uh, when during the COVID uh, time, when the border was closed, 
for uh, at times it was completely shut off, but uh, most of the time our export, coal export and minerals product export to China remained uh, not as usual, but slightly less suppressed than other products. So in the, um, for example, uh, vegetable, fruits, uh, the goods that people use every day were really, uh, you could say the effect, what would happen when we close the border with China. So trade volume with China is uh, 70% or more than 70% of our total trade with any other country. So we are so heavily dependent on China for other things. So in, in that sense, it is also difficult to break away from that relationship and take sides. There's two questions that come out of that. One is the Siberian, the new Siberian pipeline that had been talked about forever that would cut across Mongolia. How how should we think about the Siberian pipeline? There's a um, power of Siberia too. Uh, is the name uh, is the name for the pipe uh, proposed pipeline. Uh, for Mongolian official position, it has been on the on the table, and the president of Mongolia, when he visited China, and of course discussions with Russia, it's uh, progressing. On the um, social front, uh, for the civil society and for the academics, for the analysts, uh, this pipeline has has been seen as a risk, added risk and security challenge. Um, myself, uh, I have been always vocal of, uh, in terms of opposing the idea. And in 2014, I gave an interview in one of the Mongolian um, internet newspaper um, examining that this pipeline is uh, increasingly pulling, will pull us back and will not help us to proceed and progress in terms of energy independence and energy supply. We are under uh, extreme difficulty in terms of energy uh, supply. I think we are under energy poverty. Even though we have a lot of natural resources, there is not uh, enough power plants to supply the demand of electricity and heat. And as you can imagine, Mongolian winter is a survival game, you know. Uh, right now, it's uh, last night was negative forty-two Fahrenheit, which is over for below negative forty centigrade. So, in that cold, uh, thinking of uh, air pollution or CO two emission, and uh, this is a luxury question. And it becomes the game of survival and just making through the extreme cold nights in winter. So in that sense, we are really under energy poverty and all our partners, if they support Mongolia, that's an area that Mongolia needs the most help. And that's an area that our policymakers should be focusing on. But unfortunately, um, the reality, harsh reality is that, that our uh, policymakers, I guess I'm also included, have been unable to make a stride and progress uh, building up a new energy supply. Uh, in that in that reality, the power of Siberia too, the pipeline, is seen as a welcome addition. But I think in the long term, it's uh, it will uh, make Mongolia, let's say, maybe la- lazier, 
<laughs> or more complacent to not to, and then make us not really push for other types of energy resources and energy supply. I would opt out to using coal-based methane gas, you know, coal to liquid projects, coal to gasification, uh, super efficient coal-fired power plants because we have tons and tons of coal, all types of coal. So uh, coal-fired power plants are not really the most fashionable thing to build these days around the world, but I guess, you know, it... uh, and in parallel, we should pursue other types of energy supply. Like uh, we have a lot of renewable resources. It's very sunny in Mongolia. There's always sunshine, even in the cold. So we have to test the variety of technologies, like solar energy technology that would perform well in the um, in this extreme cold and hot temperature gradient that we have. If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org slash donate. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org slash donate. There is an absolutely huge copper and gold mine uh, being developed that is terribly important. with Rio Tinto as the major owner and operator. I read somewhere that, and I suspect the numbers are exaggerated, but there are people who believe it could contribute a quarter of Mongolia's GDP within a couple of years. And all you told is that uh, you are correct in terms of the economic scale of the project and the impact it will have on the, on the Mongolian economy. And it has had so far, um, uh, the oil project is, um, I would say, two parts. There is an open pit mine and there is underground mine. The underground part is much, much larger than the current operation of the open pit mine. And when it commences, which is expected to be the first quarter of this year, um, the underground part will have a significant uh, income uh, will generate a significant income for our tax bases. Um, so Mongolia is in doubt, well in doubt, with uh, copper, uh, gold, molybdenum, and other types of minerals. There are smaller projects that are in the pipeline uh, in coming into operation for the next several years. And when we globally look into clean technology, uh, green technology, you know, uh, net zero strategy of various countries around the globe and climate cause. Definitely, we have to look into these critical minerals projects as not just for Mongolian economy, but also as a ticket and key to the prosperous and cleaner future for the world. So I hope many of these projects will be successful and also helpful to Mongolian economic growth. Um, When you say quarter of Mongolian economy, it is at the current stage, but I hope the economy will grow fast and well, that the project at this current size will not be a quarter, it will be a smaller fraction of the economy in the absolute sense. As you know, though, the resource curse is something that many countries in Asia and Africa and Latin America 
have had trouble managing. How do you think your country, Mongolia, can get it right? Um, Mongolia, uh, I am very proud of the fact that, you know, uh, at least many of these debates are open and it's being uh, conducted uh, very openly, publicly. So even though I acknowledge that there have been mistakes in the past in terms of investment agreement, uh, making it making too many changes too often, um, or maybe making an agreement that maybe is not always on the best interest of the Mongolia as a con- of Mongolia as a country. So if you make good agreements, good investment agreements with the partners and stay consistent on that, that would be the key for a better investment climate in in our country. Uh, I also want to say about the governance again, you know, it's really important to have a good governance, political governance um, in the businesses to have a company that's well managed. There is a tendency to nationalize some of the projects and I hope we will correct the course and not in, uh, stay on that path of national national nationalizing. Um, uh, you see, uh, in the projects that are run by the state, there's uh, cases. There are many cases of embezzlement, mismanagement, and corruption. So, for a better governance and cleaner and more transparent governance. I think it's much better to leave the management of the projects to private sector. It could be Mongolian companies, it could be international partners, investors, and have a tax uh, environment that's predictable and stable. So that stability and cleaner, better governance will be an assurance for avoiding, like you said, the resource curse. Uh, and we have uh, made, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But in in a net sense, we are making uh, reasonable progress. And I hope the speed of the progress will pick up. When you listed the resources, the natural resources that Mongolia has, you didn't mention uranium. And I've read that potentially Mongolia's uranium resources make it one, one of the largest, could make it one of the largest producers of uranium in the world. Are those resources real? Are they going to be developed? Are they going to be developed? And do they have, how do you cope with the politics of of that development? Yeah, they are quite real. Uh, and definitely they're not imaginary. <laughs> and I, uh, I have worked on uh, uranium and rare earths uh, policy of uh, Mongolia for quite some time. And the number of projects in uranium uh, sector, uh, in the um, projects that are being developed and leading one is uh, being developed by the French company Orano, which used to be Areva. Um, the Mongolian uranium resource, if it is proven, it's estimated to be quite uh, extensive. And if it's proven, uh, I think uh, we it puts us, in, us into one of the top players. Uh, unfortunately, many of the investors and exploration companies exited Mongolia, including uh, larger players like Canadian Chemical, Denison Mines, etc. Many of the Canadian uh, players have 
returned their uh, exploration permits and then exited the country precisely because of political uh, and policy instability. Of course, it's not like uh, um, commodities that uh, go have an expiration date. It's still there. And I think prospect is still there. So Orano's uh, flagship project in Mongolian Gobi on the uranium uh, uh, sorry, extra- extraction, uh, it's in-situ leaching technique. Uh, if it uh, comes into operation, it will give probably better encouragement and confidence to others to be interested in, in the uranium sector. If we engage in training our people, have a strong environmental policy, mining reclamation technology, then we will be in a good position to extract these resources in a responsible way. When I was a member of parliament, that's one of the areas that I paid a lot of uh, effort is a responsible mining lobby group within the parliament was established when I was a member. And um, I stayed in that mining support group for four years, and I continue support supporting responsible and sustainable mining practices. Let's end with this question. We've talked about geopolitics, we've talked about economics, we've talked about resources as a basis for Mongolia's future growth. You've talked about how in the past there have been occasions when Foreign investors left because of policy instability, because of changes in contracts, etc. I'm wondering if geopolitics might become another negative in terms of the attraction of Mongolia to investors in various sectors, but including these important resource sectors. Yeah, it is uh, too soon to tell uh, in some sense, but already I see uh, the opposite. Uh, I see that many of our international partners are uh, more determined to work with Mongolia. Donors have increased their stake in Mongolia. Uh, There is a determination to partner with Mongolia in terms of developing the natural resources and energy sector. So uh, in in some sense, uh, of course, investments to variety of projects will be helpful to Mongolian economy. But on the other hand, our position between Russia and China should be, could be seen as a positive. It's a, uh, in the sense that if you have a manufacturing facility in Mongolia, then the large markets are right next door. Um, and uh, there are many big ifs, of course, the border security, border stability, smooth operations of customs, Etc. would be conditions that are required in order to have a good trade with the with the neighboring region. Uh, so I see renewed interest from our partners, and I hope that that will fuel our economy in in a more positive way. Let me thank you for this conversation. Uh, we do not know Mongolia as well as we probably ought to know Mongolia, but given your description of the country and the projects in some really critical sectors, Mongolia seems to be one of those countries that will be more and more visible to us in the coming years. So that gives us, that will give us another opportunity to talk in a while and see how all this evolves. Okay, thank you for having me. 
Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's t a l l b e r g foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros Niarchos Foundation. <laughs>